you need to settle down at the right time. And time is running out. Oh, you want to pursue higher education? That's nice, but that sounds long. When will you get married? You're almost 30 and you're still single. What will people say? Listen, you have to adjust a little. You're a woman. You know how it is. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alobi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome to our season finale of season one of The Hurt. In today's episode, we're going to chat with our very own Dr. K. So last week, Dr. K interviewed me and we got into the nitty gritty of my birth story and my experiences with pregnancy, giving birth and the postpartum period. But today we're going to get into Dr. K's story and we're going to discuss something a little different. We're going to talk about mental health, sexual dysfunction, social stigma, and the South Asian community. So let's get into it. Dr. K, can you start by actually telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. So I'm an Indian immigrant. I was born in India and moved to the U.S. when I was nine years old. So, you know, growing up, I felt pretty out of place a lot of the time, which, I mean, I'm sure a lot of young women do, um, young people do, but for a variety of reasons. But for me, I just, I don't know, I felt different. So I had a strong accent. The food I ate was quote-unquote weird. The kind of dance that I trained in was also quote-unquote weird. So I trained in this form of Indian classical dance, which is like the Bali of India, so definitely not something uncommon worldwide. But in my school, where there were very few people, if any, that were from similar circumstances, so, you know, South Asian immigrants, I was different, and I felt isolated mentally and emotionally a lot of the time. I totally get where you're coming from. As a South Asian woman, I feel like I felt that way too. And there were often times in my life where I just didn't feel like I fit in completely and I was different. But do you think there were maybe any times that you felt perhaps like depressed? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I was a huge nerd in high school. I mean, still kind of am. But as a way to kind of ignore my feelings of isolation and to make myself and my parents proud, I really threw myself into academics. So I studied a lot of the time. And if I wasn't studying, I was reading books. And books were my form of escapism, really. That ability to enter into another world, one where I could just free myself from loneliness in a way, was intoxicating. And, you know, to be fair, I did have a strong support system in my parents. And my mom was my best friend growing up and did everything she possibly could for me. And then once I became really involved and passionate about dancing, you know, I found kind of more of my stride in terms of self-expression and social interactions. But even with all of this, I still went through multiple periods where I've just kind of felt down in various times throughout my life because it's really hard not to feel out of place when you do feel so different. 
And I also felt like I couldn't really talk about it freely. So honestly, there were plenty of times when I didn't even recognize that I might be depressed because it wasn't anything, you know, extreme or what we kind of traditionally think of when we think of depression. I wasn't considering harming myself or others. I wasn't unable to do my work or get through the day. I didn't spend days just lying in bed, gaining or losing weight, shutting myself off from the world. You know, I went through all the normal motions of life and I didn't just survive. Some of those times I really felt like I thrived. So on the outside, I was doing great. But on the inside, at times, you know, I felt empty. And I think I was going through phases of subclinical depression, which I think a lot of people do. That's really brave of you to share. And I know I started off by getting right into it, but I really wanted to get into something that really does resonate with a lot of us. And we don't always know how to talk about it whether in the South Asian community or even not. So I'm very thankful that you have agreed to to talk to us and to our audience. And I want to actually make sure that our audience understands what you mean by subclinical depression, because I think that was a really important term that you used. And perhaps our listeners will kind of understand this better as well now. But there are actually several different forms of depression, and this includes postpartum depression, atypical depression, and more. But I do want to differentiate between subclinical depression, also called subthreshold depression, and then actual clinical depression, which is also known as a major depressive disorder. So uh, major depressive disorder is what we commonly think of when we think about depression. So it's when you're feeling depressed most days of the week, you may have either lost weight or gained weight. There's loss of interest in activities that you would have normally enjoyed. Uh, there are feelings of being slowed down or sluggish, feeling of you know difficulty really getting out of bed, being tired all the time, and maybe even thoughts of suicide. So that's really major depressive disorder. And what you were describing earlier obviously didn't clearly fall into this realm. So I can see how you may not have even recognized it as a form of feeling depressed either. So subclinical depression is actually a much milder form of depression where it doesn't completely uh, meet all the criteria for major depressive disorder, but it can still affect the quality of your life. So thank you for again speaking up about this. Do you feel comfortable talking a little bit more about how perhaps uh, being South Asian may have affected this and also what you think uh, in terms of how common this may actually be in the South Asian immigrant experience? I definitely think it's common in the South Asian immigrant experience. You know, I'm not unique in these feelings. I think that a lot of the South Asian community feels this way, at least at some point in their life, but the problem is that they don't really talk about it. You know, and the South Asian community has so many amazing and positive aspects to its culture. Like, I'm very proud of my South Asian heritage. I'm very proud of my culture. But I do think that depression and anxiety is a big part of the South Asian experience, and it's particularly prevalent in the South Asian immigrant community. So, you know, you're in a foreign country, you don't know how things really work here, you don't know who to turn to, you're isolated from the friends and family that you had back home, and you may not even speak the language of the country, and then you're going through all of this while trying to fit into a new community. And that's really hard to do. And I do think that, you know, depression and anxiety automatically sort of become a part of life without even realizing it a lot of time in this immigrant community. You know, that is such a good point. And I can't even imagine how you may have felt and also like our parents. I know I'm first generation um, born here, but like our parents' generation and, you know, the generations before that who came to a new country may not have even known what 
mental health really was. I think finally we're shifting the conversation to mental health to a certain degree, but the people who really came before us didn't have the foresight or the knowledge or, you know, really the awareness, I guess, to understand that. So I'm really, again, grateful that we're able to talk about this. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about what you mentioned as well and mental health in general. So I think you're absolutely right that it is a shared experience in our community. And, you know, like we said, we're finally getting awareness. I did look up some statistics and studies in preparation for this interview. Oh, like me last time. <laughs> yes, because it does help put your and other people's perspective, uh, experiences into perspective. So I want to share some of those with you now. So in regards to the South Asian community and the immigrant experience, like you mentioned, Dr. K, so if you actually look at immigrant life in the UK, for example, because there were more studies in the UK, which is a great place to start, um, I'm going to start with an overview before I get into the specific stats. But for example, Indian and Pakistani women reported significantly higher rates of depression and anxiety compared to white women, even when adjusted for socioeconomic status. So regardless of where socioeconomically their status may have been, they had higher rates of depression and anxiety. So even if you're well off, that doesn't really protect you from depression and anxiety. Some studies have even demonstrated a particularly high susceptibility among South Asian immigrant females to self-harm, depression, anxiety, insomnia, and eating disorders. And this even links to chronic diseases, which are which were also much higher among the South Asian immigrants for chronic illnesses. And researchers have often linked um, psychosocial stressors to an increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease and cancer. And often these go, the psychosocial stressors and other clinical diseases go hand in hand. So I think it's an important topic that we're talking about. Exactly. And, you know, depression and anxiety play a huge role in chronic diseases, like you just mentioned. And they also play a huge role in chronic pain, which is obviously something that you and I talk about all the time. Yeah, exactly. You're completely right. They're so closely tied. Um, do you feel like maybe if you feel comfortable talking about it, do you feel like you developed any physical symptoms when you were going through these periods of stress and depression? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I had a period in my life, maybe about 10 years or so ago, where I was so stressed out and anxious for a lot of different reasons, including what I kind of now recognize to be an emotionally abusive relationship that I actually developed several months of just terrible IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. So I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And my mind was flying to things like, you know, major gastrointestinal diseases, cancer, the works. And that's something that we often ignore that depression and anxiety can manifest in a huge variety of symptoms. Like it's not just in your head. And a big one amongst the list of symptoms is chronic pain. So depression can lead to decreased pain tolerance where kind of everything just hurts more than it would otherwise. And there have been a lot of studies that looked at this. And depression can even manifest in physical pain, which is part of a concept called somatization, which is basically what I was experiencing. That is so important to note, I think, for our listeners especially, because, you know, like you said, pain and mental health really do go hand in hand. And oftentimes, perhaps, um, people may not know that they're manifesting one of one of these symptoms. So I think it's really important that you mention that. Um, I also want to mention that there was actually a study, they have done studies in general on this, but there was another study done on college students um, in terms of pain and mental health. And they noted that there were increases in lower back pain reported during times of stress, so such as final exam season. And these 
College students were otherwise pretty healthy, but almost 50% of them reported lower back pain um, during college final exams, essentially. So it's really interesting to see that this applies to even young, sort of healthy uh, patient population as well. Exactly. They're just so closely linked, and we don't often think about that. And this is particularly true in the South Asian community, that concept of somatization. So I think something that you know, we don't talk about that often, but should be, is that South Asians, they often have a completely kind of different set of symptoms for depression and anxiety than what we traditionally are kind of told to look out for. So, you know, they don't always present with the symptoms that we mentioned earlier. So the, you know, the feeling low, feeling sluggish, tired, difficulty concentrating. Instead, they present more with like weird aches and pains, digestive issues, like I did, um, headaches. And yet when we talk about the South Asian community, we as a community just don't easily seek help. And then if we do, we kind of go for our physical complaints, not really any mental complaints. So that's kind of a big differentiating factor between the two. Yeah, you're completely right. Because, you know, we don't always understand that the two might be related. So I actually have some statistics on this. And um, if you actually look at the US uh, with Asian Americans diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder, only 40% of U.S.-born and only 23% of foreign-born Asian Americans used a mental health service of any kind. So that's a 17% difference. And overall, only 34% of Asian Americans sought mental health care within a 12-month period as compared to 41% of the general population. So there really is a big difference in not just getting access to mental health care, but also recognizing that mental health may be a diagnosis. So why do you think our community is so resistant to seeking help when it comes to their mental health? So if I just kind of speak to my own personal experience um, from what I've noticed within the community, I think there are a few big reasons. So one, they just may not know where to go for help, like who they can reach out to, what services are even available, because a lot of times they're immigrants and they're here and that's everything is sort of foreign and new to them. So they may not know where to go. And then two, I think there's sort of this misguided belief that mental health services aren't important, like they're frivolous and probably aren't even going to help or aren't even necessary. And maybe that if you do seek them, you're weak in a way. And then three, I think this is like a really major one, is that there's a huge social stigma with seeking help for mental health issues. I think much of the community is just afraid of being judged or thought of as like, quote unquote, crazy by their friends and family. And that's a big barrier to them seeking help. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, that's, that's so true. And there's also you know, stigma in terms of like, are you doing something wrong? You know, should you be praying more or thinking mm -hmm. positive? I know that's a whole other sort of area that that's how people um, kind of address mental health to a certain degree, I think, in the South Asian community. So I do have some statistics again <laughs> to look <laughs> at, um, to look at this objectively. So there was a UK study done that compared how a person perceives their illness and then their patterns for actually seeking treatment for illness between the North Indian immigrant women population versus the white women population. And they found that the North Indian women were more likely to report that treatment for depression would not be beneficial and didn't believe a visit to their doctor for mental health was even necessary, which led to only 20% of these women being um, willing to seek mental health services and this was compared to 46% of British women, so 20% versus 46%. And in regards to social stigma, there have actually been several studies that found culturally linked stigma regarding mental health service 
uh, use within the South Asian community in both the United States and the UK. So this might be one of the reasons why patients might not know or even seek help. Um, the studies show that there is this belief that disclosing that you have a mental illness would bring shame on the family. And like you said, is considered a sign of weakness. And in one actual UK study, they saw that social stigma was the underlying main reason that a group of South Asians caring for their older adult relatives with dementia didn't consult a professional because of this sort of social stigma involved with it. So, you know, again, I think this is another reason that we have to create awareness and hopefully encourage our peers to speak up. Mm -hmm. It's so sad and so unfortunate that there's so much that we could potentially do in terms of caring for our family and friends that just doesn't happen because of the stigma that's associated with it. And I do think that a part of it is also that aspect of being in a foreign country, you know, that the healthcare professionals that you might go to would be of a different cultural background. So they may have different values than you. So there's this fear that if you do seek help, your ideas of what's considered normal aren't going to be accepted or even validated by your doctor or therapist. And so then you feel like, what was the point of even going there in the first place? Yeah, you touch on something so important. You're absolutely correct. There was actually also a study done on this. Of course. <laughs> that showed that as well, um, mental health providers who don't share their patients' cultural backgrounds may have ideas of family life or gender roles that they consider normal, but were actually different in their patients' sort of lives. So again, this kind of, you know, ends up undermining the effectiveness of certain psychological treatments or the patient's willingness to seek out treatment. And like we've been talking about, these issues are even more prevalent in South Asian women. And what this has all ultimately led to is that the overall suicide and self-harm prevalence is much higher in South Asian women compared to South Asian men. And in one study, they actually saw that the rate of suicide in South Asian women was seven times higher than that of South Asian men. And 44% of these women were, so almost half of these actually, were married. So again, this kind of goes hand in hand into, you know, not just creating awareness, but also having more South Asian professionals speaking up about it. Because like we said, if patients feel comfortable talking to, to people of their own background and even possibly the same gender, this is again, important for us to sort of create awareness and encourage other people to go into these sort of professions. That is just so unfortunate that it's come to that where we hear of these stories and we see these statistics objectively, but we also hear of these stories within the community of more so in women than in men just you know, committing suicide instead of seeking help or feeling like they couldn't go somewhere for help. Um, or maybe if they even did seek help, it wasn't accepted by the community or they didn't feel comfortable with the therapist. You know, there's just so much work that still needs to be done with mental health in our community. And with women South Asian immigrants, you know, there may also be a loss of control and agency over your own life. So, you know, I had read several studies that discuss predictors for developing mental health issues among South Asian women. And those predictors were marital conflicts. So including a history of domestic violence and financial coercion and forced isolation from their support system. And that's a big thing. You know, you're moving to a foreign country, you've already lost your support system because they're back home. And then if on top of that, you're experiencing something as horrible as domestic violence, or, you know, feeling like you have no control or access to finances within your own household, you know, you, you feel just a sense of complete loss of control and have no idea what to do next or where to turn to. 
And I think a lot of that, and we do see this within the community, this is not something that's uncommon necessarily. And what that ultimately kind of boils down to in regards to you know women and men is that for women, the perception for women in parts of the South Asian community are that women are inferior to men and that a woman's desires and choices are not as important or as valid as a man's desires and choices. I mean, let's just take marriage, for example, right? I think South Asian women just feel so much more pressure to get married and to be quote unquote settled than South Asian men. And they're the ones that are expected to compromise on any of their desires far more than men do. You are absolutely right. I've definitely heard about this. I've seen it amongst family and friends even. And I really do understand where you're coming from. And, you know, it's hard to kind of explain this to other people who are not South Asian, but I'm very happy that you're speaking up about this and telling us about uh, your experiences. Have you actually felt this way? Oh my God, so much. So I say this from my own experience, also the experiences of my South Asian women friends, but that pressure to get married is relentless. You know, it really starts somewhere in the early to mid 20s, sometimes even earlier, depending on sort of the household. And then as you get closer to the age of 30, it's like a pressure cooker. I don't know what it is about the age of 30 for women in the South Asian community. It's like an expiration date, like spoiled milk, like you hit 30, and you've gone bad, and you need to be just poured down the drain along with any marriage prospects that might come along. You know, I remember when I was 24, I was with someone who was emotionally and verbally abusive. And I didn't really recognize it at the time. Um, it took me a while to recognize it. But, you know, that was the case. And I was afraid. I was afraid to leave him because I felt like, what if I don't meet anyone else? What if I get left behind and don't get married? What will people think? And then when I finally ended things, my parents were actually thrilled that I did, you know, to their credit, they, they're, they're amazing parents. And they were actually thrilled that I did because they were just like so happy to see me out of that. But a family friend commented to my mom that she couldn't believe that my mom had supported the breakup and that if I were her daughter, she would have told me to marry him because he looks so good on paper. And that by breaking up with him, what will people think? That's just like the key phrase, the catchphrase, really. What will people think? And there's a sense of, I don't know, desperation almost from the South Asian community to see its young women settled. I keep using that word settled because that's the word that was often used with me is like, you need to be settled. And sometimes even at the risk of abuse in you know all of its different forms. And that's just the reality for a lot of South Asian women in um, across the world, really, doesn't matter really where in the world you are. That is the reality for, I would say, a lot, if not most South Asian women. Yeah, you mentioned some very good points again, and it's, it's terrible. It really does upset me uh, when I hear stories like that. But it's interesting that you use the word settled because it's such a buzzword in our community. And there's this thought that if you're not married, you're unsettled in life, right? Like as if you're incomplete. Basically, all of your other accomplishments don't really mean anything, whether that's having a successful career, having wonderful friends or colleagues that respect you, having hobbies or just feeling personally fulfilled. It's as if none of those really matter unless you're actually married. That hit the nail on the head. That's how I felt. I felt like such a failure, even though objectively I had so many great things in my life. You know, you, you may know something to be true or false deep down in your gut, but when you're hearing from so many external sources, an entire community, that you're not enough, you start to internalize those feelings and start to think, you know, what do I need to change about myself? 
when you really should be turning the narrative around and saying, what are the ways in which society needs to change? And it took me a long time to get to the point of, I'm okay with the way I am, I accept myself, and how can I help in terms of changing the way society thinks and perceives South Asian women? That is such a brave way to look at it. And it's such a good point. You're totally right. Because there was really nothing to change about yourself, right? Like, it's just, I I can't believe you had to go through that. Was there a moment for you where you really wanted to start changing that narrative for yourself? I think it was when I turned uh, 31, you know, that was just like a scary year, I guess, for not so much for me, but for more for other people within the South Asian community, where I was like past that 30 mark. I'm not sure if there was really a specific moment, but I just remember like, worrying less about marriage and society's perception of me. I just became more interested in mindfulness and self-care and started to accept that I just can't please everybody and make myself happy at the same time. So I have to just let it go. So one way or the other, I have to let go of trying to please everybody else. And it's funny because for the longest time, my parents had wanted me to get married so badly. And don't get me wrong, it's not like they wanted me to forsake my happiness or marry for the sake of marrying, but they did want me to get married in the, you know, society dictated, quote unquote, right time. And when I didn't, you know, before the age of 30, they just kind of relaxed about it weirdly. And that was such a relief because it allowed me to just kind of take care of myself, accept myself, focus on my career um, as a new attending, as a new attending at the time um, in medicine, travel, be free. And then I did meet someone great and I did get married, but now it was finally sort of on my own terms, which was so freeing. Yes, you did. And I <laughs> I would like to think that I played a part in that. <laughs> you did. I obviously know your story and I've known you even before you met your husband and we traveled together to Europe. So I feel like I was with you through a lot of these ups and downs. But I want you to touch on the fact that your husband is, well, not South Asian, because I'm sure that was sort of an interesting point of contention, maybe, um, perhaps in your family. But I know in the South Asian community, this is still an interesting topic to sort of touch upon. Oh, it definitely can be. You know, I think interracial marriages are getting more accepted in our community and, you know, the world at large. But I was so nervous. I I really didn't know how my parents would take it. And I genuinely think me going through all those ups and downs, like you said, kind of put things in perspective for my parents too. And I feel like at that point, you know, once I was kind of past a certain mark, they just kind of wanted me to be happy. And they accepted him with open arms. And honestly, the other part that was really surprising to me and I was so pleased by, so did everybody else. You know, the first time my parents met him, my mom cooked like an epic meal. So she's an, she's an amazing cook. And I told him before he met them that it's considered rude to leave food on your plate because in my family it is. And he loves Indian food. So he was totally fine with that. And, you know, he gets there and then he eats all the food that my mom served him on his plate. So my mom offered him more. And he didn't want to be rude. So he said yes and ate everything on his plate again. My mom offered more. And it just like kept going on. And it was hilarious because I could even see in my mom's face like, wow, he eats a lot. This is, this is crazy. And like, but he just kept going at it. But he was doing it because he felt rude to say like, no, I'm full. I don't want any more. And then by the end of the meal, I had to like roll him out of there. But, you know, they did, they, did, they did think he was a great guy. So it worked out. I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm really happy that that they liked him. Um, so tell us a little bit about your wedding, if you feel comfortable talking about it. I personally know the story, but how do you feel about all of that? Well, we were supposed to get married, like you know, in March of 2020. And that didn't really go according to plan. 
So we actually canceled our wedding 10 days prior to the date. And, you know, because, well, the pandemic, obviously, and I was actually working in the hospital in the OR with COVID patients the week of my original wedding date. So that was an interesting experience. Um, It really put things into perspective. That definitely sounds rough. And I'm sure that was a hard time to really sort of process it all. You know, at the time it was, but it's really fine. Uh, there were just so many bigger things going on in the world than my wedding. And it just, I mean, you know this because you've also been through multiple COVID experiences yourself. But I feel like having gone through that, the wedding was sort of the least of my concerns at a certain point, And I really just wanted my friends and family to be safe. So we just ended up doing a civil ceremony in July with two witnesses. And we tried to live stream it to the family and the wedding party. And you know, because you're in the wedding party, so you're on that call, and all of our devices overheated in the middle of the ceremony, so no one actually got to see us married. My parents were so upset, but honestly, it's fine. We replanned a wedding for when it's safe, so we'll kind of all be able to celebrate and share the moment with our family and friends, you included, later this year, much later this year when it's safe. And I'm definitely looking forward to that, and I'm very happy for you guys. So I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk about one more sort of major source of stigma in our community, which you can presume is sex. So do you feel comfortable talking about it? Let's do it. So I want to start by mentioning some statistics. The rate of sexual dysfunction among women worldwide is about 41%. So just a little bit under 50%. I personally think this is a huge number. And 30% of women experience pain with vaginal sex and don't tell their partners. Do you think these statistics really ring true for the South Asian community as well? Oh, absolutely. Probably more so, honestly, than the general community or the general world at large. So, I mean, I've experienced this myself many years ago, and I couldn't talk about it. I just like didn't know who to talk to about it, what I was experiencing, but I was also just afraid of anyone finding out because sex is so unbelievably taboo of a topic in our culture. Like often the extent of a sex talk is don't do it until you're married. So the idea of like having sex before you're married is considered shameful. And to be clear, it's usually just for the woman, not the man, where it's considered to be shameful. But what it ultimately comes down to is that you don't know who to turn to for clarity on what's normal and what isn't. And like, I definitely didn't know. I was young and experienced and my partner was quick to blame me and refused to discuss anything. And that, you know, that lack of support, of resources, of education, really, on the topic of sex combined with my partner blaming me for experiencing pain made me feel like there was something wrong with me, which I think is definitely something that probably happens to a lot of women in the South Asian community. And there wasn't really anything wrong with me, just like there isn't anything wrong with any of these women that go through something similar. But it's, it's the lack of being able to talk about it and the lack of resources that makes it a problem, not anything wrong with the women themselves. I'm so sorry that you had to go through something like that. And you're right. I think wanting to talk openly about this is something that's seen as like Western or something that, you know, the Western folks do and therefore it's bad. But sex isn't part of Eastern or Western culture only. It is literally human nature. But for us, it's often seen as shameful to talk about it. And it's a natural part of life. And only by talking about these issues can you actually begin to treat the problems that are happening. So let's take orgasm, for example. According to various studies, 
75% of women don't orgasm via vaginal sex. And in the United States, women have one orgasm for every three orgasms that a man has. But the rate discrepancy is likely even higher, and maybe even more so in the South Asian community. But that's not what we're really made to believe, right? When we look at TV or movies. And if you're going to a community where you're not even allowed to talk about this openly, the media is really what you're going to turn to to really know what might be normal. Exactly. You know, there was this TED Talk by Grace Wetzel in 2019 that discussed orgasm in women and pointed out several interesting factors. So, you know, when we think about it, your baseline of understanding is that sex, which is sex via penetration, is what should lead to orgasms. And that's what we see a lot of times in movies as well, right? And if you're not experiencing that, you already feel like you failed. And now if you're throwing in pain, like you're throwing in pain penetration, you can see where all those thoughts of thinking you're a problem would begin. So if we keep kind of breaking this down, women experience orgasm primarily via clitoral stimulation. But like, do we even consider clitoral stimulation to be sex? I don't know about you, but I do feel like most often I've heard this described as foreplay. And foreplay means before sex. So in other words, not a component of actual sex. So if we think biologically, in order to kind of propagate the species, the man has to orgasm, so it results in a pregnancy. But women don't have to orgasm. So sex and a man's orgasm is necessary. It's a necessary component. While a woman's orgasm, it's something extra. And it's this mentality that is perpetuated just generally in all cultures. But when you throw in just how taboo talking about sex and female desire is in the South Asian community, you can just begin to see how so many women suffer in silence. And I think the first step in changing this is empowering women to speak up and engaging men in that discussion, which is something that doesn't happen easily in the South Asian community and really needs to change. You are so right. It is definitely a two-way street. And it's we both need to be a part of the conversation, men and women. And it's not just about women talking to each other necessarily. It has to be a discussion between the actual partners, like between men and women to each other. So, you know, even when we think about male sexual dysfunction or like erectile dysfunction, the rates are much higher in studies with Asian subjects as compared to studies with European or Australian subjects. And again, this kind of shows that even amongst the male population, this is a taboo subject because they're afraid to sort of speak up about it or ask about it. And again, this could be due to a whole variety of reasons, but I really do wonder if, you know, this taboo sort of topic is a reason for a lot of these uh, numbers. You know, I wonder that too. And honestly, I think it does. I think that that inability to talk openly about it plays a role in male sexual dysfunction also. And, you know, and we've talked about what a big role your mental state plays in your physical self. And with the stigmas placed on discussing mental health and sexual issues, it's just inevitable that depression, anxiety, physical pain, and sexual dysfunction would just all go hand in hand. You know, our culture has just it has so many amazing positives. And I know we haven't focused on those in this episode. And it does have so many amazing positives. The camaraderie in our community, you know, our festivals, meditation, yoga, our food, just rallying around one another. There's just so much. But then there are areas where we can do so much better. I just love when I see like champions of mental health, women empowerment, sex positivity, all of that in our communities. We do have them, but I think we just have to amplify each other's voices because that's what we need to do in order to kind of see change. And the more we amplify each other's voices, the more change will just automatically follow. That is such a great way to put it. I really, I really love that you said that. 
And I'm so happy we were able to do this segment. So thank you for talking with us. Thank you for being so open and honest. And I know we both have plans on discussing more about this in the future. Um, but we want to say thank you to our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us this season. We are so grateful for all of your support. We have had a blast uh, doing season one, and we're super excited to get started on season two, which is going to come out this fall. So thank you again, and we will see you on season two. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.